Hello, and welcome to the Homeland Podcast. Step out to find out it's wet and warm, wet and warm. Tra-la-la, 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 tra-la-la. Where if you're in the park or green space world, and you're at a community meeting and somebody asks you, what do we do about the homelessness in the park? And your response is something like, well, that's not really our issue. We don't really, uh, uh, if you don't, if you don't at least start thinking about the fact that even if your answer is, that's a really good question. Here's all the things we're doing. Here's our partner who we work with the most on this. And here's who we always turn to when we have these questions. If you don't have something as simple as that, I think folks are really going to start pushing back that are you truly doing your best work? I first met Tamika Butler when she was the director of the Los Angeles County Bicycle Coalition. Brilliant, funny, and not prone to pulling punches, she is simultaneously personally magnetic and politically unapologetic, holding those of us who have had a hand in shaping the building environment to account. Now serving as the executive director of the Los Angeles Neighborhood Land Trust, She brings the lens of a civil rights attorney to her work, helping to reveal and correct the inherent built environment inequities for people of color, people who are poor, and or may be experiencing homelessness. Given her diverse background, I wanted to hear Tamika's perspective on how homelessness intersects with transportation and open space in the city with the highest unsheltered population in America, Los Angeles. Her insights did not disappoint, and I hope that you will enjoy this conversation with Tamika. So I wanted to start the conversation today by looking back at some previous work that you had done when you were the executive director of the LA County Bicycle Coalition. And I'm observing from the outside, but my impression of your time there was that you took an organization that was primarily focused on sort of the nuts and bolts of building bicycle infrastructure and really began to think about it more as an entire community um, building coalition that was going to help people who are poor, people who have been marginalized uh, in various ways and think about why mobility mattered to them. Can you speak a little bit about that legacy uh, that you left behind there? Yeah, I think um, the legacy is is still still to be told. I think, you know, whenever you leave an organization, you do whatever you can and you hope they continue. But just like I took the organization in a new direction, um, I, you know, I I wait and and see what what the new executive director does. But for me, um, from the minute I interviewed um, for the job, I told the board, you know, I'm, I'm a queer black woman. I'm a civil rights attorney by training. Um, That's how I see the world. That's how I do my work. And, you know, this is a bike organization, and that's why I want to work here, because I love bikes. But if I get this job, um, it's it's also going to be a social justice organization. And so for me, I think I always thought of the bike as a tool of social justice because of the way it brings people together, because of the way it brings people joy. Um, And we we were still the best in the game, in my opinion, in LA at doing hardcore policy advocacy, going to city hall um, and advocating for, for bike infrastructure. But I think we also had to talk more about people and talk more about the way that the bike was just something 
that fit into the lives of people. And that created this whole built environment issue where you couldn't talk about a bike lane without talking about gentrification. You couldn't talk about Vision Zero without talking about um, policing and communities of color. And I think that was hard for folks. And I don't, I don't think everybody on board or on the board um, was, um, you know, was on board with it. And so I, I think that I really pushed. And, and I think what we're seeing is that a lot of folks in the land use and transportation space, they're starting to realize that they have to talk about these other issues because the folks we're serving, they're thinking about all of these issues, not just their bike or not just their park or not just where they live. They're thinking about how their whole community um, might be changing or impacting their health or impacting, um, you know, their neighbors or their criminalization. And so I think that's, that's what, what we have to do as advocates. Well, I think you've also made a really powerful economic argument about how the way that we've designed our transportation system has excluded people of a certain economic class. And one of one of the positives of the bike conversation was that this was an easily accessible, affordable means of transportation that allowed access to jobs, that allowed access to resources that maybe people didn't have otherwise. Yeah, I think absolutely. And, and I think we've seen that with a lot of policies. So, um, you know, I was on a webinar recently with um, with the author um, of a book that was talking about affordable housing policies and how our government had policies in place that, um, you know, explicitly excluded black folks and not just harm them in that moment, but have continued to harm them for generations and their ability to accumulate wealth. Tamika is referring here to a conversation with Richard Rothstein, author of The Color of Law, who I interviewed in episode 13 of the podcast. If you'd like the themes of this episode, I highly encourage you to check out my interview with Richard and to pick up a copy of his excellent book. And I think we've seen that in many, many policies, and I think the transportation system is, is one of those systems. When um, Secretary Fox was still in his position with the prior administration, he often talked about how transportation had left a legacy of racial segregation um, and oppression. When you, you know, throw down a highway system and you divide communities, you stripped homes from people who actually were able to have homes, you took their homes. Um, when you look at, you know, thinking about the other side of the tracks, so when you think about what communities, buses are regular and on time, and there's a place to sit and there's a shade structure, and then, you know, you're in my community where I live, a, a black community, and it's just a sign and a post and, and no shade. Um, and, you know, hopefully the bus is on time. Hopefully it, it's coming. Um, and and the example I, I always like to use is, you know, we used to, at the Bike Coalition, we did bike education classes. And we did bike education classes with funding from our Metro, our, our MTA. And we, you know, as part of a grant, you have to have so many sh people show up for your classes. And one of our community members called us out on the fact that, you know, you're not doing any classes in South LA. And if we want to get our, you know, black and brown folks trained on, you know, safe bike riding, we have to get them to these other communities, not our community. Why aren't you doing more classes in our community? And so I went back to my education director and I said, why aren't we doing more classes in South LA? And he very honestly said, he's like, look, like we, we have to deliver on our grants and our most, 
you know, our highest um, attendance classes are in downtown Los Angeles, right by Union Station, this hub of transportation where everyone can get to it. Um, and then a lot of our classes on the west side, which also are right by transit stops and everyone can get to it. And so we, we've gone with where we're going to get the highest attendance and where it's close to transit. And so we had a really great staff conversation about, well, wait a minute, are we just perpetuating years of oppression? Because why is it, is it easier to get to a white neighborhood on the west side of LA um, than it is to get to South Central Los Angeles? Why is it easier to get to downtown LA, um, but you can't get to you know where people might need this the most when you look at our Vision Zero um, high injury network. And so it's, it's one of those things where we have to realize that policies were put in place and you can argue whether or not they were intentional or unintentional. I would argue in many cases intentional, but no matter what you believe, the impacts um, that we now know and see, if we do nothing about it, then that's intentional and we have to be honest about that. Yeah, and it seems like I mean, the first step is the conversation that you had with your staff around just acknowledging that history. And then do you have any insights about how you get out of that rut? How do you don't reinforce that pattern? How do you shift shift direction? I mean, I think for us as an organization internally, we have to say to ourselves, uh, we might not hit all the numbers. <laughs> and when we don't hit all the numbers, we have to be able to write uh, a very impassioned grant report um, saying about, you know, why it was still important for us to do something. And I, I think that that we, we need change from the grassroots level. We need folks um, who, like our community partner, said what you guys are doing isn't right. And then that change came up to us and we changed. And then maybe our, our you know, grant report helps create more change. But I also think, um, we can't always put the onus on the people who are oppressed to be the ones who say what you're doing is wrong. At some point, we have to look internally and we need our leaders, we need our elected officials, we need the folks who are running our agencies to not um, count on that, but to just know that, you know, this is the history of our country. We are a racist, white supremacist country. Like, there's probably going to be some things that have happened that have, you know, oppressed and isolated um, communities of color, low-income communities, and when we do provide services and we do try to stimulate the economic environment there, it might also have some unintended consequences. So we have to think about all of that and we have to talk about all of that. And so I think we need the change coming from all angles and all sides and we need everybody to step up and say, I'm going to be a, a willing participant in making this better. Yeah. It, it seems one of the things that you did at the Bike Coalition was in, in starting about change coming from all sides was form some non-traditional coalitions. I mean, I think I've seen you present talking about endorsing homeless initiatives, talking about a, a much broader range of public policy positions than simply, pardon the pun, staying within your lane on, on, on the bike, bike infrastructure. Can you talk about what that conversation internally was like and, and how you were able to get the board at the time to, to go there? I mean, again, uh, you know, I wouldn't say that, that everybody on the board was, was on board. Uh, I think that there was a lot of pushing of folks who were really well-meaning, great, um, left-leaning folks, but just couldn't understand why we would ever want to talk about more than just bikes. And I think for me, it was one, 
trying to be as persuasive as possible. Um, but two, you know, the the folks who are um, currently homeless and who are experiencing homelessness uh, in Los Angeles um, are in some ways one of our largest constituencies at the Bike Coalition. Um, you know, we, we were two blocks, um, if that, from Skid Row in downtown Los Angeles. Um, and we know that a lot of our, our, our folks who were our neighbors um, and who might be experiencing homelessness, what they had was their bike. Um, and so one, I, you know, I just thought it was core, if we're just gonna make a straight up argument that we should be talking about bikes and just bikes and the people who ride bikes, well, then those are, those are our people. And, and they might not have the most expensive um, multi-thousand dollar bike and, and clip in, you know, nice shoes, but they ride their bike. It's their main mode of transportation. They rely on their bike and it's our job to speak up and, and do what's right for them just as much as it is, um, you know, for those of us who also ride around on the weekends and, and spandex. So I, I think, I think that's part of it. And then I think, you know, what, what folks have to realize in coalition building is that when we're in a coalition with affordable housing advocates and there's potential to move something politically, I was, a, I was able to put us in a position where, where they would reach out to the bike coalition and say, hey, there could be a transportation component on this. What do you all think? But in order to get there, I showed up to a lot of meetings about affordable housing where we weren't necessarily um, explicitly only talking about transportation. And I think sometimes, you know, it's it's a struggle. As, as advocates, we have to make sure we're not experiencing too much mission creep. Um, we have limited resources, and we have to do what's, what's true to our mission. But we also have to realize that it's an intersectional world, and, and we have to form those relationships because the issues that impact our constituents um, go beyond just their bike. Can can you um, talk about that word intersectional? Because I think it's one that some people may be familiar with, and other people that may be the first time they're hearing it. Yeah, so I think for me, the idea of intersectionality, and I know some folks don't don't even like intersectionality, but I think what it means at its core to me is this idea that no one. Um, I I think it was Audrey Lorde who said, you know, there's no such thing as a single issue struggle because none of us leave single issue life. And it's this idea, um, I always use an example when I was a civil rights um, employment discrimination lawyer. If a gay um, immigrant, non-English speaking woman came in and said she experienced um, employment discrimination, oftentimes she wouldn't be able to say, it's because I'm a woman, or it's because I'm an immigrant, or it's because I don't speak English, or it's because I'm gay. It would be, well, it's probably a little bit of all of those things right? Because she lives this life where she has to experience the intersections of all those identities. Um, and so it's, it's being able to take a step back even when you're not a person who has all of those multiple, multiple identities to realize that at any given time, any person is dealing with a multitude of issues. So if they're dealing with how they get to work on their bike, and they're riding through their neighborhood that is also zoned to allow for active oil drilling, they're also dealing with the fumes they breathe. And as they ride their bike, if there's no fresh food or grocery store to stop and pick up their lunch, but there's only fast food restaurants, they're dealing with that. And if there's no green space or parks in their neighborhood to get out and be active, 
um, they're dealing with that. So it's realizing that at any given time, there there are multiple things um, facing folks. And I think the reason some people don't like intersectionality is because an intersection for some um, evokes the image of something that is like ordered and, you know, there's time when you go and there's a time when this person goes and now pedestrians go. And the reality is that the way a lot of this turns out is messy and it all collides at the same time. Um, and it's in fact an, an intersection that perhaps needs better infrastructure. Um, but the reality is, is that it all comes together and we have to be able when we're at that intersection to look all ways and realize that there's traffic coming in all directions. And how do we not try to fix everything out of all at once? How do we hold space for the fact that there could be multiple types of oppression going on or multiple issues facing a person? Right. Well, let's shift now to what you're, you're doing uh, currently, which is working at the Los Angeles Neighborhood Land Trust. I think some people may have heard of the idea of a land trust um, in terms of affordable housing, but can you explain what the Neighborhood Land Trust does? Yeah, so, you know, a lot of folks, when I started saying I'm working at the LA Neighborhood Land Trust, they assumed I was working at an affordable housing organization because that's what many folks think. There's also another type of land trust that um, kind of was born out of the environmental movement and is more of a conservation um, model where there are organizations like the Trust for Public Land, which a lot of folks have heard of. It's a national organization. And they might go in and see thousands of acres um, and they might say, okay, we're as a nonprofit gonna gonna buy that and help preserve it um, as you know as its natural environment, as green space, um, you know the the kind of thing that would drive our current um, president crazy um, in places like Utah um, and and try to strip it back. But they would they're actually the type of organization that would go in and try to protect that kind of land, right? And so the idea is that everyone should have access uh, to green space nature. And so, you know, these, these land trusts like us, we will go and we will get land to, to ensure that it can remain something that everyone can enjoy. Our organization in particular was started about 15 years ago, and it was started um, to address park equity. There, there was a trend happening in LA where because Parks and Rec was, was so strapped budgetarily, they were really only building large projects. And as a result, in areas where there weren't large plots of land, they weren't necessarily building parks. So of course, that disproportionately impacts uh, low-income people, folks of color, folks living in high-density communities. Um, and again, this, this is a policy that we have to examine. Is this a policy that was intentional? Maybe, maybe not, but is it a policy that had intentional impacts of making sure that low-income folks, folks of color, didn't have access to the same green space as other folks? And even today, if you, um, if you look at a, a Google map of, of LA, you'll see green space in very specific neighborhoods, and a lot of green space being golf courses that are private and not open to the public. So for us as a, as a land trust, we want to take some of that land back and have it be open to the public. So when there are pieces of land, we will take them, and then we engage in an intense um, community-centered model where you know someone might come to us, whoever owns the land, whether it's the city, the council, 
uh, or the county or a private individual, they might come to us and say, hey, we would love to see a park or garden here for our community. And we will do door knocking for a few miles around the plot of land. And if the community says, we don't want to park, we need affordable housing, we won't do it. If they say to us, we don't want to park our garden, that will increase truancy, um, gang violence. Those are educational moments. And then we work with the community to understand the benefits of green space and a park. And then we work with them through the design process, not in the typical, um, you know, planner design way where you come with two plans and give them stickers and say, do you like this one or this one? We go with a blank sheet of paper and we say, what do you want to see in this park? What do you want to see in this garden? How many, um, you know, beds do you want for how many people? And we try to work with them. Now we might come back and say, we found this in the sequel review. We can't do this, but we can do this but they're really part of the process throughout. And then the goal is by the time the park is finished, we just had a grand opening of a five acre park um, on Saturday. And the main speakers, we had all of our elected officials and we had our partners at um, the Department of Water and Power on the city and the county, but the main speakers were these two women from the community whose door we knocked on years ago in that first process where we said, do you want park? And they are women who have grown up across the street from the, from the you know, open field. They called it the field and always wondered why it couldn't be a park. And so now, even though we built the park, we've now turned it over back over um, to the city. And now those residents formed a park advisory council and the city knows who they are. They know who their maintenance people are in the field. They have regular meetings. We go to the regular meetings and we make sure there's this relationship where now that park is really owned by that community. Hmm. And it seems like um, you touched on this a little bit, but you're really addressing some some deep historic inequities. My understanding of the park development in LA is kind of that there had been some plans uh, early in the, the 1900s to ha have parks throughout the city, but for whatever reason, probably all the embedded racial poverty issues that you're, you've spoken about, those were never built. And I was shocked. I mean, I, I was down in LA a couple of weeks ago and walked around Skid Row, 50 square blocks and two postage stamp sized open spaces in that neighborhood. Is Is that history what you're confronting? And I is that idea of the the two little postage stamp parks in that 50 square blocks is that the rest of LA for someone who doesn't know LA very well yeah so that is definitely the history we're we're fighting and I think you know we passed we passed the ballot in in the um, election um, the the sad presidential election but a great election for LA because it's when we passed um, you know something saying we we're gonna build housing for our, our homeless folks it we passed our transportation measure we defeated a really restrictive housing measure we did a lot and one of the things we did was pass um measure a which was a parks and green space measure and what was so transformative about that is the county actually went around and partnered with community groups to do community meetings throughout the county and say what do you want to see? What are you missing? What are you lacking? And they put together this map that's on um, on the county's um, you know parks and recreation website. They put together this map, and it's different colored, and they show the areas that are higher need, and they show the areas that are low need. And and what's 
really stark is when you look at that map, you'll see that there are a lot of areas like Skid Row. There are a lot of areas that have super high park need. And when you overlay that with racial data, when you overlay that with um, income, when you overlay that with public health concerns, uh, basically think of any metrics when you overlay it, um, it is that low-income folks, um, folks of color, um, don't have the same access to green space. And I think what's also surprising to people, again, is how much of that map lights up is, is high need. Um, and and I, think, I think it is totally what, what we're trying to correct. I think a lot of groups now, um, just like in the, in the transportation world, equity became a sexy word. I think a lot of folks in, in the parks and open space world are starting to talk more about park equity. And we're really a unique organization in that we were started to address Park equity. That was our whole goal. And we are, um, you know, I think we're, we're so thrilled that there are so many groups in the space doing the work. Because when you look at that map, the need here in LA is huge. And it's, it's crazy uh, to have a city of this size, of, of this scale, um, and, and think that there are folks um, who, who can't get to a park, who can't go outside and walk 10 minutes to a park. And I think there's so many of us who grew up in places that aren't LA who can't imagine not being able to walk 10 minutes and get to some green space. Um, and so, you know, our goal is to make it such that every Angelino has a 10 minute walk to a park. Hmm. I, I wonder if um, in terms of like operationalizing that idea of equity in open space, it's one thing to create the open space itself, but it's a whole other thing about the management, the maintenance, whether or not there's a fence around it. Are you addressing and unpacking some of those issues and, and or, or what's your critique of maybe the way that Los Angeles handles that now? Yeah, so I, you know, that is the hardest part about our work. And I, I think what folks don't understand about the LA Neighborhood Land Trust, we're really a unique organization. And part of why I wanted to take this job is because for me, it's all about land use and community building. And I want to continue to push myself to learn everything I can about building just and equitable communities. And so I, 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 I've started to really have a, a firmer grasp of the transportation piece. And so I, I want to continue to learn more about land use and what this organization provides me to learn, but also the community is a resource, is that we do policy advocacy work. So we're on the front lines when there are ballot measures. Um, there's a huge ballot measure here that will be on the ballot in June for the whole state, um, SB5, that is all about open space, um, water, um, and, and having access for low-income communities um, and communities of color. And so we're, you know, we're in Sacramento, we're at the county, we're at the city, and we're literally doing the policy advocacy and seen as, as leaders in that space. Um, because we have that unique community organizing model, and because we have some really strong leadership development programs, both for youth at a local high school um, and for adults who are on kind of like the, the leadership councils of our parks and gardens, we're able to also translate our policy work into real stories with real folks and they're in fact shaping our policy work they're the ones who are actually going to city hall and testifying and telling us what they need to see and when we do that policy advocacy work and we generate that money to build more parks we're also a park developer 
So we literally, as an organization, we have two budgets. We have a general operations budget and we have a budget just for capital development. And so one of the things, you know, I think when I was an advocate, a transportation advocate, and we were fighting for Metro to, um, to you know, pass and put together and, and, you know, get on the ballot, Measure M here. And the CEO of Metro said, you know, there's this piece of the pie, there's this piece of the money that we have to protect for maintenance. Like, we can't just keep building new trains. Um, we have to, you know, protect the trains and buses and rails and, and infrastructure we have. And as an advocate, you're like, I get that. But also, where, where's my slice of the pie for biking and walking, right? Now on the side of being the developer, I'm right there with him. We've been building parks for 15 years. We've been a part of 27 parks. And so now we have to go to folks and we have to say, we need you to help us upkeep this park. We need you to help us figure out what to do with the fact that when we built the park 15 years ago, um, some of the problems we're seeing now are the problems that we saw then. And so we need a new strategy around X and we need some support in doing that work. Um, and everyone wants to build a new park. Everyone wants to cut the ribbon on this brand new thing that they get to say they were a part of and they want to be part of transforming that community and transforming that field. Um, but the reality is, if we leave behind the folk who we've already invested in by moving on to the next greatest thing, we're not truly doing our jobs. And so I, I think that we, we understand that struggle. We understand the struggle that, that cities and counties and agencies face because we're facing that struggle ourselves. And I remember we have one park in particular um, where there, it's by a railroad track, um, and it's it's surrounded by a, a fence that that we help design. But there's one section where we share um, a property line with an agency, and it's just a normal chain link fence. Um, and the fence keeps getting cut through. And as as the as the community has been experiencing more homelessness. And there have been different policies to break up homeless encampments. And they have moved closer and closer to the park. And now they're moving, you know, they're, they're crawling into the park. And not because of any mean maliciousness. We have a water fountain in the park. We have, you know, some shade structures in the park. We have some places where you could, you know, get like a private good night's sleep without having to worry about the elements. And when we've talked about it as a staff, and it's like, well, what have we done in the past? It's like, well, we did like the problem was there, um, but but we, it wasn't, you know, the number of people weren't facing what they're facing now. And now we need to really be thoughtful. We need to not see this as a problem. We need to realize in the same ways that we, you know, engage the grandmothers and engage the gang members when we're doing our planning meetings and making sure that everyone feels ownership of the park, we want our folks who are experiencing homelessness to feel ownership of the park. And how do you do that with the need to do maintenance? How do you do that with the need to make it feel like a war warm and welcoming space for everyone? And how do you do that with, you know, paying your water bill and, and what that means for your water bill? And so I do think we are a unique organization and, and, and where are we in solving those problems? I would say as an organization, um, you know, we're going into a strategic planning process next year. This is one of the main things on our plate. 
um, as a city, as a county, I think we're all, um, the commitment is there, but I think we all have some really tough questions to ask ourselves. Are we, um, are we trying to support folks experiencing homelessness in particular um, as a means to support folks who are our fellow Angelinos? Or are we doing it as a means so that we don't have to see it? Mm-hmm. Are we doing it as a means to keep them as the other? Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think then you get back into conversations about racism and um, and and what and criminalization and what that all means. And so I I think there are some really tough questions ahead of us. And t- when you think about it intellectually, um, it's hard to think of a better city to do this work than LA because I think the resources are there, the will is there. And we're all ready to to dig in and roll up our sleeves, um, but the sheer volume of it, based on just our size, I think um, it it could be overwhelming to folks. And and again, when you look at it from a nonprofit lens, um, and you get into headier issues like the nonprofit industrial complex, um, it's really hard to get a grant to think about um, how you might solve a problem, as opposed to you know, strict metrics about how you will solve the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was I was at an award ceremony last night for a foundation that gives grants to leaders to just think about innovative ways to solve problems. And I think there needs to be more of that because we get so tied up and just like, no, we got to meet these metrics. We got to meet these metrics um, that we're not really taking a, a moment to step and stop and pause and reflect and say, this is a systemic problem. What are some big solutions we can think of instead of grant by grant, year by year. Right. I, it, it seems like both both the issue of there being an, a homeless encampment is its own thorny thing that we that we need to unpack. And then the tension of the communities that w- you're working with that have done so much hard work to make a public space for their community. And then, you know, oftentimes the presence of people who are experiencing homelessness makes people feel unsafe. And how do we how do we build that that bridging social capital between those two groups. Exactly, and I think that's our work as an organization. Um, that's something that all of our organizers have expressed is coming up more and more in their parks, um, and they need the support and the training to do it. And I think something we're realizing is we also need the support of elected officials. We need the support of foundations. This is this is huge, and. Again, this is where bringing it full circle, being in more diverse coalitions is really important because at the end of the day, we are not going to become a homeless um, services group. That is that is not our bread and butter. That is not what we're best at. And frankly, it would be disingenuous to even seek funds or resources to do that work when there are already so many great um, groups in Los Angeles doing it who are in many cases underfunded. So really being in those diverse coalitions and sitting at some of those tables is how we can be um, a resource to them and they can be a resource to us and we can support each other. And so instead of saying like, we only do parks, you only do homelessness, how can we realize that we all play an important role, but we have to start talking to one another. And I, I really think, you know, I remember when I was in transportation, one of the questions you would always get is like, what do you think is the big issue coming coming up? And about, you know, a year ago, a year and a half ago, I think we all would have said Vision Zero. Borrowed from successfully implemented design and engineering in Northern Europe, 
Vision Zero is a set of strategies to eliminate all traffic fatalities and severe injuries. It has been adopted as a policy goal in several large American cities. Tamika delivered a provocative keynote address at Transportation Alternatives Vision Zero Cities Conference in 2017 that I'll include in the show notes on the webpage. Vision Zero and what that means, what it means for policing, what it means for infrastructure, just like, is Vision Zero really going to work in the United States and is it going to catch hold? I think um, in, in the open space and parks world, um, I think, especially at the local level, because at the federal level, there's a lot happening, but at the local level, I really think when you talk to anybody at a park, they are saying, what are, how do we work? How do we support our neighbors who are experiencing homelessness? And how do we support our community that has a preconceived idea of what homelessness is, what it means, why it's there? Um, and, and how do we bring those forces together while also doing things like maintaining our grass, making sure that when the slide breaks, you fix it. How, how do we do all of these things? And realizing that so many of our organizations that are charged, um, and again, whether it's, it's nonprofits like us or an official agency or city, um, this isn't necessarily something that when these groups were created and envisioned, they would have thought of as under their umbrella. And there's um, Charles Brown at Rutgers says, if you're a transportation planner and you go to a meeting and somebody asks you about affordable housing um, or, you know, displacement, and, and you can't answer that question intelligently or at least have something to say, then you're the wrong transportation planner. Like, we got to get somebody new in that position because that's just how the position has changed. And I think we're getting to a point where if you're in the park or green space world and you're at a community meeting and somebody asks you, what do we do about the homelessness in the park? And your response is something like, well, that's not really our issue. We don't really... Uh, uh, if you don't, if you don't at least start thinking about the fact that even if your answer is that's a really good question, here's all the things we're doing, here's our partner who we work with the most on this, and here's who we always turn to when we have these questions. If you don't have something as simple as that, I think folks are really going to start pushing back that are you truly doing your best work? Mm-hmm. One, one thing that we haven't talked about yet that I know you had some uh critical thoughts on in the transportation world, but I want to crosswalk that over to the parks world is the issue of enforcement. Um, we know that uh, law enforcement, the data is there to support that it is often impacting most predominantly uh, poor people of color, um, particularly in transportation where it's jaywalking, where it's, you know, uh, nuisance infractions that lead to a cycle of, of, you know, just being caught up in the criminal justice system. Are you seeing those same issues playing out in public open spaces or is it a different nuanced situation happening there? I think it's, I think it's some of the same. Um, and, and I, I, I really, I really do. And I think it's, you know, in the transportation world, and now also in this world, I think it is this, this question about how are folks being policed in public spaces. And so that's why I think there's that overlap, because it's how are people being policed when they're biking or walking, or when you're in a neighborhood, um, you know, in, in LA, um, 
in the last year, we, we took the train to the beach, which was a huge victory for the city. But in order to take the train to Santa Monica to the beach, you have to go through South LA. And you have to go through a community where many people are reliant on public transportation. And so all of a sudden now, as a black person um, who maybe has used the train forever when white people were never on it, all of a sudden, there's a ton of white people on it getting to a beach. There's a ton of white people on it getting to the LA Rams game that now is at USC that takes you through the heart of South LA. And so you're in this public space that you've always been in, that you've always occupied, but now all of a sudden that there are things there that other people who previously avoided your community want to get to, they have to experience your community. And oftentimes they center their whiteness and they center their privilege to talk about how they feel unsafe or how it's dirty or how someone's looking at them wrong. And I think the same thing happens in a park. Perhaps it's a little different in the sense that if we're creating a park where there was previously no park, you don't have the same exact thought of like, but I've been riding this train forever. I've been at this park forever because we're creating something where there was nothing. But I do think that there is still the issue of now that there is a nice space, um, who's supposed to be there? And who's okay to be there? And who's okay to hang out there? And I think whether or not you're talking about the train or whether or not you're, you're talking about the park, um, this is, again, an intersection where folks who are experiencing homelessness um, really get, I think, a heavy brunt of that, whether or not they belong and whether or not they're creating blight or are okay to be there. And then I think, you know, you can think of a million cases uh, and, and you can have a ton of examples of where all of a sudden, once folks feel like, oh, this is really nice, there's a determination on who's, who's, who's good enough to be there. And we have examples of folks who have been biking and walking while black, while brown, who have faced um, enforcement, often deadly. And we have situations where little black kids are playing in a park and viewed as more dangerous because they're doing the same thing that a white kid would do in that park, but all of a sudden, they're dangerous. And so even if there was no park there before, just the fact that it's there and now that there are people actually using it and it's activated, there might be more eyes there. Um, and sometimes that's a really good thing, but sometimes it's, it's hard to, you know, just because there's a nice park or just because there's a nice train, we can't take out the problems with policing and enforcement we have. And so I do think that there are issues we all face. And, and as an organization, um, we had an incident at, at the same park where there were, you know, there were some folks fighting um, who weren't in the park. They were outside of the park um, and, and they were fighting and they were arguing and there was a weapon um, involved and we were having a community meeting. And so we had to evacuate the park um, and everybody was okay. It was fine. But we had this internal conversation like, does everybody feel comfortable calling the police? because there are some folks who don't feel comfortable calling the police. This is a predominantly um, Latino community. Um, you know, and, and people wanna feel safe. Um, and at that particular park, we actually have a great relationship with the community resource officer who is visible, who comes to our events, who every, you know, when we have our party every year, gets his cadets to run the barbecue. And I think that's the kind of policing you need to form a bond. 
but there's still those questions like we're in a park and we're just playing and we're just having fun but even when something serious happens that in some communities they wouldn't even think twice about calling the police we still have this this concern of like okay what does this mean for us as an organization for our community if we're calling the police here and we're, we're not sure that it's going to be our resource officer that we all know and trust and that's because again our community members aren't going to separate their everyday experiences with policing just because they're in a park and so we have to think of those issues as wrapped together mm, yeah um I guess the, one of the last questions I want to ask you is is around process. I mean, you, you kind of gave, gave my profession a little dig there, which which I appreciate <laughs> uh, around the, the typical kind of planning process around parks. What what is the model? Dive a little bit deeper on what LA Neighborhood Land Trust uses and why that's such an important and empowering piece of of what you all do. So I, you know, I think, again, one of the reasons I really wanted to come here is because I wanted to be at an organization that really centered racial justice and was unapologetic about that, um, really centered social justice and environmental justice and was unapologetic about that. And I think it's it's, it's hard to find those those spaces sometimes in the, in the transportation world. And then I think I, I also wanted to be at an organization that really centered and this idea that we would have money in front of us to do something and that it could be super viable, but that we would walk away and say no because it's not what the community wanted. Um, to me, that's just such a sign of integrity. It's, it's, it's different than many nonprofits you hear of. Um, and, and it's not just a, it's not just a, let's have one community meeting. Let's, see who comes, let's hear what they say, and then let's go forward with what we think anyway. Or let's just have one community meeting, let's see what they say, and then let's go forward based on what they say. Um, it's not either of those, it's literally door to door. It's sitting in people's living rooms. It's getting to know them. Um, at any organization, I think organizer is often a high turnover role because it's, it's a grind to be an organizer. And I think something we see whenever we lose an organizer, you know, our community members have our organizer's cell phone numbers. They know them as people. They know how their kids are doing. Um, and, and we know the same about them. And to me, that's a, that's a real sign of process that it's really about forming the personal connections. And it's really about making sure people feel engaged at every step of the process and knowing that it is, we don't feel like it's our job to tell them what's best. We feel like it's our job to tell them what's possible and that they can tell us what's best. Mm. And that's really, I think it's, it's small, like it's, it's such a small shift, but having a process that's about telling people what's possible, um, not what's best, is, is, is totally different. And I think that's really what we base our work on. So maybe the last question to ask then is, you know, the profession of people who shape the built environment is predominantly white, predominantly middle class. What, what have we missed by it being so homogenous? And what's, what's the recipe for the future to, to improve the situation for the whole panoply of, of the American diaspora? 
Yeah, I mean, so I think what's so interesting, and and one of the things I I've really tried to do in my short stint in in this profession, you know, I, I'm trained as a lawyer. I'm not trained as a um, as a planner. But one of the things I've tried to do is whenever a school asks me if I can come speak, I try to say yes. Um, and you know, um, we we've developed for my organization. We have a speaking fee. Um, it's not necessarily low, um, but for, for students, for universities, I, I try to always see us. And part of the reason is because as, as, a, as a black kid who's growing up and had parents who didn't go to college, you could not have explained to me what a, a planner was. You could not have explained to me what, um, you know, I, I knew what an architect was, um, but but you couldn't have explained to me what an architect did outside of like designing houses for rich white people, right? So like the, the landscape of, of what you could do in this space is so different. And I think that one, we've missed an opportunity um, to tell um, young folks who come from low-income backgrounds, young folks of color, that, that this is a, even a possibility, that it's a career. So in some ways it's like the secret career um, that the folks who are in it know about, but it's not something that like, you know, on career day, anybody comes and says, I help design cities. Um, and, and I don't think that, I think there's so many folks who deeply care about their community and what happens in their community and don't even realize that a lot of the folks making the decisions um, are in this space over here that you've never really thought about. And so one, I think we've missed an opportunity to just develop a pipeline of, of folks, you know, if, if we're going to be planning cities and we're going to be planning communities, theoretically, you want folks who have experienced that city, that community, and multiple um, facets to help help you shape what you're doing and help you shape the future. And I think oftentimes in our profession, we're missing whole whole parts of it. Um, and And I think whether or not you're talking about this or whether or not you're talking about a university classroom when when you lack um, folks with with diverse points of view with diverse experiences um, you are really lacking an ability to critically think and and do your best work at the highest level now I think what we have to get to is I think as a profession folks are, are really into diversity like starting to get into diversity in this way that's like kind of crazy to me like, I don't think the legal profession is nearly as diverse as it needs to be on any level. But the legal profession is at least at a place that you would be very hard pressed to go to any firm website and not see a tab that says diversity. And like, there are like stock pictures of the two women and like the two people of color. Like they at least know that they should try. And I feel like this profession is even a little behind on that. Like they're just getting to the point where they're like, okay, like maybe diversity is important. And I think unfortunately, the profession is getting to that place at a time where the country is so beyond just diversifying. Just having diverse views and diverse perspectives in the room really isn't enough anymore. It has to be at a place where we're not tokenizing folks. And it has to be at a place where those diverse faces and people also are integrated um, and, and able to be decision makers. And, and a profession that I think is really built, um, there are a few young rising stars. Um, I, you know, I think of like 
Keith Benjamin um, out in the city of Charleston. There are definitely some some young rising stars, but largely it's still a profession where like you kind of have to hit different rungs in the ladder before you can to get to those top decision making positions. It's not startup culture where just because you're smart and have a great idea, you can you know you can kind of move up. Um, and and I think we have to figure out ways to let those folks who are new and rising stars get into some of those decision-making roles. Um, because I think the the number of things we're missing by by not doing that are too numerous to name in the, in the time we have left. But more than anything, we're not building cities for everybody. We're building cities for um, cisgender, straight, white men. Um, and oftentimes, cisgender, straight, white men who like to drive cars um, and 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 like healthy young right like we're not building for our older adults and as our gener as our um, as our country continues to age with folks who want to age in place we're not building um, for the single mom um, who doesn't have access to a car we're not building for women who face street harassment all the time um, and thinking about how lighting and different things impacts that like I just think we're missing so much um, and then when you add racism and white supremacy to that, it's just so much more. Tamika, it is always such a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, I thank you so much for your criticality, for your passion, and, and most especially for your ability to tell truth uh, in, in a disarming and delightful way. Um, probably more people need to hear it. Uh, thank you so much, Tamika. No problem, and thank you. Thank you for listening. This podcast is part of the Homeland Project. We invite you to learn more about the project at homelandlab.com. Our work would not be possible without the support of MIG SVR and the Landscape Architecture Foundation's Innovation and Leadership Fellowship. To learn more about the tremendous work of LAF, please visit their website at lafoundation.org. Finally, we want to thank our friends at Yves for the use of their music. You can learn more about the band and find out about their debut album at thesoundofyves.com.